Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. So welcome to 12 Stone here across our campuses, 12 Stone home all over the place. There are two things that I think we can all unite around uh, this weekend and this week. The first is this, quit changing our clocks. Anybody with me? Like, let's just be done now. We have light later at night. Let's not do this again. This doesn't make sense. That's the first, and I'm all in favor of that. The second thing I think we can all unite around. Listen, God is moving inside of 12 Stone Home. You might not know this yet, but part of the vision God gave us as a church is that God would allow us to have a gospel presence in all 50 states, and God is beginning to move and, and show himself faithful in that. And 12 Stone Home is, is nothing more than a, a group of people, neighbors, friends, family, that gather together inside a living room or a tap room or a coffee shop or a neighborhood community center and they gather and they worship together along with us here at our campuses but they're doing it in homes in living rooms and they're a full expression of church it's not just watched online they're they're in community together listen to what God's doing here just in the last eight weeks we've had nine baptisms across 12 stone home and launched four new 12 stone home groups and we have nine more coming before summer isn't that awesome and there's, there's one group, Steve and Stephanie, out in Port Orchard, Washington. And this group started up, and they got about 20 people meeting in the living room. Last weekend, they got to baptize four people on their front porch. Isn't that awesome? Tell me that's not God moving powerfully. It's, it's crazy to think how many times Steve stood out on his front deck just drinking coffee in the morning, not realizing God wanted to make that a sanctuary. Don't you love that about 12 Stone Home? God is not done moving across our campuses and inside of 12 Stone Home, and we celebrate all that God's doing. But let's, let's jump in with where we think, where I think God wants to take us this weekend. And I want to start here. How many of you have ever played the game as a kid? You remember playing the game, whose dad can beat up whose dad? Anybody? Uh, we, I played that game as a kid. I, I distinctly remember in sixth grade, my friend Kevin was hanging out, and we were in my garage, and we're going back and forth. Like, well, dude, my dad can hit a home run out of the park. Oh, yeah, my dad can lift a car. And eventually, it got to the point where it was like, listen, Kevin, my dad can beat up your dad. And he goes home, and I go inside, and I was like, yeah, dad, I told Kevin what's up. I told him, you could beat up his dad. He's like, what are you doing? I'm a pastor. I can't be running around street fighting. What are you talking about? I couldn't understand in his head. Like, Dad, you're the strongest person in the world. Of course you could. I didn't understand it until about five, six years ago. We're living in our neighborhood, and I walk outside, and I walk out to hear Luke say this. Yeah, my dad could definitely beat up your dad. I'm like, Luke, get inside. Now, locked up. I know this kid's dad. He's corn-fed, and he's country. He could take me, man. Let's not play this game. See, whose dad can beat up whose dad? Sometimes, listen, we mix up who can take who. And your kids might be playing that game, and you might not know it. Have a conversation today, or else you might get sucker punched somewhere, right? Be careful. We mix up who can take who. That's a little bit about where we're headed this weekend. See, if you were here last week, and we started a walk through the, the, the person of Moses, the story of Moses, and that cat was born and adopted into the palace, day one. Life is good for 40 years. He's raised as a prince. The problem is that all the while that Moses was in the palace, God's people, the Israelites, they're enslaved by the Egyptian king and the government. They're being worked hard. And the Egyptian king is, is using the Israelites to build his kingdom. 
And then when Moses is around 40, he loses his temper when he sees an Egyptian guard messing with an Israelite and he kills him, buries him in the sand, runs off. And you remember Moses was like, it's over. I thought God put me here to be a deliverer for his people. And yet it feels like it's over for 40 years. He lives out in the wilderness. And then last week we ended by talking about God showing up in the burning bush. Praise God. And God gave us his name, Yahweh. He will be. So Moses, I know you're not all that great, but, but God will be in your place. And God now sent Moses back. And he said, listen, it's time for you to go back to Egypt, the place you messed up. It's time for you to go back and to be the deliverer that you always knew I called you to be. It's time for you to go back. And last weekend, we sat inside the name of God. And this week, we look at the strategy of God. What did God do to free his people from Egyptian tyranny and enslavement? And that's where we pick up. And here's a caveat. I don't want you, as I walk through this story, to look for yourself in the story. You know how when you read a Bible story, you're like, which character sort of represents me? Don't do that yet, because you're going to get it wrong, I promise. I'll tell you what that is at the end. Don't, don't look for yourself in this story yet. Let's look for our God in this story, right? Let's not look for ourselves yet. I'll, I'll show you what that looks like. So set that aside. Here's where we pick up inside of Exodus 5. And here's what's happening. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. So God sent him back to Egypt. Said, go talk to the Pharaoh, to the king. And he said, listen, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Remember last week we learned every time you see the word Lord, all caps in your Bible, that's his actual name, Yahweh. Say, listen, I don't know this Yahweh you're talking about. Like Moses shows up, remember, he's stuttering, he's insecure, he didn't, he didn't feel like he's worthy, and he shows up to the Pharaoh, and he's like, hey, let my people go, God said to. Of course, what's Pharaoh's response? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not giving away all my free labor. Like, it's not, it's not gonna happen. In fact, the Pharaoh made it even worse on the people. If you read through chapter five, the Pharaoh said, listen, not only am I saying they're not gonna go, I'm gonna make it worse. And he said, listen, you're going to go gather your own straw. What does that mean? They were building bricks out of mud and straw. And the straw was part of the binding agent to build these bricks. And he said, now I used to provide you straw. Now you're going to go gather your own. Have you heard the statement, more bricks, less straw before? That's where this comes from. Saying it's even harder. So now Moses shows up. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And his fellow people now hate him. Like Moses, you just made our life even worse. What are you doing? Like, just stop. And then this is what God says in Exodus 6. He, God's just reminding, let's go. Here's what we're going to do, Moses. Exodus 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Not only is he going to let them go, he's going to say, get out. God's saying, because of my mighty hand. And so Moses is like, what do I tell the Israelites? They don't like me right now. God said, Moses, here's what you tell the Israelites. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. We'll unpack that. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham. Remember the covenant? God's saying, listen, I'm going to keep my end of the covenant to Isaac and to Jacob. 
I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God's now revealing his strategy. It's like, listen, now Moses, I gave you my name. Now you're going to see the power and might of my acts of judgment. If you were keeping up with us in the family devotions, the weekly devotions we're doing through the Jesus Storybook Bible, last week you would have gotten a sneak peek of where we're going to land today inside of the 10 plagues. In fact, let me show you how the Jesus Storybook Bible sort of unpacks what is about to happen between Moses and Pharaoh. Here's what they said. So Moses went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Moses said, God says, God said, Pharaoh, never heard of him. Moses kept going. God says, let his people go free. Why should I? Pharaoh says, don't want to, won't. So he didn't. So God gave Pharaoh 10 warnings. They're called the plagues. First, God turned the the river Nile into blood. No one could drink the water, but still Pharaoh would not let them go. So God made frogs come hopping and leaping and jumping in your bed frogs, in your hair frogs, in your soup frogs, all over everywhere frogs. Make them go away, Pharaoh screamed. Then your people can go. So God took the frogs away. But Pharaoh changed his mind. You can't go, he said. Then God sent zillions of gnats, but still Pharaoh said no. So then God sent swarms of flies, flies buzzing in your eyes, flies. And after that, sickness and horrible boils and huge hailstones and a storm of locusts, then darkness when it should have been day until it seemed that the whole world, creation and everything was coming undone, falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. I don't know about you, but when I first learned as a little kid about these 10 plagues, it felt so random to me. Like it felt like the God of the universe is spinning around, closing his eyes and being like, and what's that? Frogs, send the frogs. And they spin around and be like, oh, the sun, blot the sun out. Spin around, like, what's that? Oh, it's a fly. Ooh, that's a good one. Go send fly. Like it feels so random, doesn't it? Like that, that list of, of things doesn't have any cohesiveness to me. It feels like not on purpose. It feels like God is spinning this big old wheel up there, a wheel of fortune, and whatever it stops on, that's the plague of the day. God, what are, what are you doing? You see, to the Egyptians, this would have been experienced very differently to them. It would have felt incredibly intentional and on purpose. See, let me help you understand the Egyptians and the culture back then. See, the Egyptian culture would have been a very rich, opulent, powerful nation. They were like the country of the day. Everybody knew about Egypt and their strength and their power. They were an impressive civilization, but despite their advancements and their power, there were plenty of things that they couldn't control. Like they couldn't control the weather. So like they couldn't make it rain to make their crops grow. They couldn't make the crops get enough sunshine. They were powerful, not that powerful. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't control fertility. Like could their wife have a baby? They couldn't control that. They couldn't control livestock. Would their livestock make more babies? And could their, could their livestock grow and their, and their cattle get more and more and more? Could they produce milk? They couldn't control that. They couldn't control if they had success in war against their enemies. And so there were things they couldn't control. They were a mighty country, don't get me wrong. But there were plenty of things they couldn't control. And so what they did is they created little G gods. They invented gods of their own. And they practiced polytheism. Poly meaning many, theism referring to God. Like they had many gods. They had gods for all kinds of stuff. They had gods for the sun, gods for water, gods for fertility, gods for crops, gods for war, gods for everything. They created gods and they built palaces and temples to them and they'd worship these gods. So the Egyptian culture had all these gods. 
And the Israelites lived among them for hundreds of years. So they would have been very familiar. But the Egyptians, listen, here's, let, me, let me encapsulate sort of how things would work with them. Here's what they would do. When something they could not control was out of control, they would worship little gods with the hopes that they could regain a bit of control. Does that make sense to you? When something like, I can't control the rain. And it's, it's a drought. It's not raining. What did they do? They created a God to the rain and they would worship because it made them feel like they could have a little bit of control. And it sounds silly, but it, it might not be as silly as you think. You see, the way the Egyptians would have experienced the plagues would have been very different. Let's just walk through them. The first plague, the Nile River turns to blood. Like imagine that moment, the mighty Nile. Like I remember learning about the Nile River, River in school. Like this is the lifeblood of the country. It's where they got the water to water their crops and it turns to blood. You see, to them, they would have experienced it as their God of the Nile being overthrown, Osiris. They had a God named Osiris, and the Egyptians believed that the Nile was the bloodstream of Osiris. And now suddenly, this stuttering buffoon, Moses, shows up, and God turns it to blood. To them, they're going, whoa, 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 wait a second. What about Osiris? Then the second plague, the frogs. They said the plague of frogs was directed at the Egyptian goddess Hecht, who is believed to have brought fertility to crops. So like, wait a second. These frogs show up, and, and, and this God that we usually worship What's going on here? This is confusing. And then the third plague, the gnats would show up. And this corresponded to the Egyptian god Seb, the god of earth from which all things come, including the gnats that come up. See, the Egyptians are experiencing this like, what, what about our gods that we worship? What's going on? Then the flies would show up. This one sounds terrible, by the way. I've had one fly in my car on a road trip. And it feels like the worst thing ever, right? Like you swatted it a thousand times and it's like ninja. You can't touch it. Suddenly all these flies are everywhere. See, they had a God named Hatchet that was the God of the marshes where the flies would, would breed and come out of. And suddenly the God of Moses, Yahweh says, send the flies. All these flies darkening the sky with flies. Then the fifth plague, the plague on the livestock. See, this would have directly challenged the God Apis which is the bull god of strength and victory and war. So for them, as they watch their livestock die off, they're watching their future in battles die off. And the god that they would pray and worship to, saying, give us success in battles, suddenly that god has been dethroned. Then the, the sixth plague of boils. See, think about that. Boils breaking out all over your skin. See, they had a god named Sakmet, the goddess with the power to stop epidemics. And suddenly, their God has no power. Think about what this would be unraveling in their culture, in their civilization. Then suddenly, hail starts falling out of the sky. This is like the insurance company's worst nightmare. Everything's getting dented up. Hail's so big, it's killing whatever cattle was left over, killing people. They had a God named Nut that was the sky goddess and the God of the crops. And suddenly, the God that they worship has no control. And then grasshoppers start showing up. And to the Egyptians, they worshiped grasshoppers as a sign of peace and the afterlife. And suddenly their country is overrun with all these grasshoppers. And lastly, the darkness falls. And the sun is blotted out. And their sun god, Ra, 
It's one of their most powerful gods. And they watch as the God of Moses blots out the very sun that gives all life and heat, feeds the plants. See, to them, it appeared like the God of Moses was systematically dethroning what they worshiped. You see, to the Egyptians, this wasn't like a random spin the wheel, let's send in the frogs, right? This to them was a systematic dethroning of the place where their hope and their security and their future and their peace sat inside of all these little gods that they had worshipped. So they believed that when things got out of control, we could worship these gods and maybe we have a little control over something that we really can't control. And suddenly God showed up and said, listen, I got him. In an epic game of whose dad can beat whose dad's up, God's winning. Like if, if God can bring all these frogs up and flies up and gnats and blot out the very sun, if there's a, if there's a whose dad can beat whose, God's already in the lead. And then you listen to this and go, how come Pharaoh keeps holding on to the Israelites and not letting them go? Like if it's just like, let's just you and I talk, like we're having coffee. If you go, watch this, and you turn my cup of water at a restaurant into blood, I'm like, you got it. Whatever you want. You have it. Like if you, if you point to the, to the stream and all these frogs come running up, I'm like, I don't know what kind of juju you got going on, but it, what, you want my wallet, take it. And yet Pharaoh keeps going, no. He relents enough so that God will relent on the plague, but then overnight sort of a moment of like, no, what am I doing here? What's going on? You see, in that culture, Pharaoh himself would have been seen as a God king. See, Pharaoh would have been seen as a God himself. And in order for him to relent and let the Israelites go, he would have to admit that he himself is not a God. Think about what that would have done to the civilization of Egypt. See, whenever something would happen, that Pharaoh, that was good, that Pharaoh would take credit, like, I'm your God, I did it for you. And for him, he would have had to admit, I am not a God. And so the tenth and final plague was going to have to be personal. This was going to have to hit home for this Pharaoh God king. And here's what it says in Exodus 12. Here's the last plague that God sent. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing, crying in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Think about this moment for Egypt. Just tragedy struck. Think about this moment for Pharaoh. You're a God king and yet you don't have the power to protect your own son from death. In this moment... Pharaoh was dethroned as a god. See, I read the plagues and think God was just like, just sort of put him in a headlock and like, let, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to let my people go. Hold on, fine, I'll let you go. No, it was deeper than that. God was dethroning their entire religious structure. He was dethroning the very things, their hope, their security, their peace, their future was built on. And in the last plague, God dethroned the God King Pharaoh. And here's what Pharaoh does. What God said would happen, happens exactly. In Exodus 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. Didn't even get through the night. Like, middle of the night, go get those two guys. 
Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said, and just go. At that moment, Pharaoh knew he was beat. If their kids are playing games of whose dad can beat whose dad's up, Pharaoh's like, yeah, your God can beat me up. I'm out. Go. Like, in that moment, this begins the journey towards freedom. Some generation after generation of God's people have been living in captivity in Egypt. And on that night, God starts the direction towards freedom, towards the promised land. And this week, if you're going to jump into family devotions, you're going to see the story of the Red Sea and how God finalizes this rescue for his people as they point towards the promised land. But the Holy Spirit arrested me this week. And I've got so much I could teach and what I've been given for this weekend. Got the Passover, got the plagues, got the Red Sea, this moment where God parsed the Red Sea. I could camp out a million places, but the Holy Spirit captivated me in the plagues. And I have a sense that God wants to use this story to go from way back there to right here and now. And I need your permission. See, I have to climb into your world to apply this teaching. And I got to get personal and direct to apply this teaching. Because I have a sense that the Spirit of God wants to convict us in some places. See, I told you, don't look for yourself in the story because you're going to get it wrong. When I read stories like this, I'm always Moses, right? Like when I read David and Goliath, who am I? David. Pretty good with the old sling, right? I read this story. I'm like, well, I'm obviously Moses. God's using me to deliver God's people, and that's my job. That's my role. You're not Moses, most likely, in this story. The person we are most like in this story, Pharaoh. And it's really hard for us to see it as it was hard for Pharaoh to see it. If it took Pharaoh 10 plagues to finally relent and say, I am not God. Sometimes it takes us that much. And the reality of this story is we are more like Pharaoh than we'd like to think. In fact, in Romans, I want to give you a New Testament reading of what it would have been like for Pharaoh. This is what Pharaoh did. And sadly, this is what we can do as well. Romans 1 verse 21. Here's what it said. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him as God. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Does that sound familiar? This is happening now thousands of years later. What did the Egyptians do? What did Pharaoh do? They created all these gods and worshiped them. And now in the New Testament, we're still talking about this stuff. Although they, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him as God. They're worshiping idols even in the New Testament. And it goes on in, in verse 24. Here's what God does when that's true of us. Therefore, God gave them over. It's a terrifying statement. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. They worshiped and served created things instead of the creator. Here's what's terrifying. When Pharaoh had his heart hardened, all God was doing was giving him over to the evil desires that he already had. Like you read the story, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God just said, hey, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. And Pharaoh was boxed in by what he worshiped. And he could not relent and get humble before Almighty God. And it cost him dearly. You remember the Egyptians, whenever they could not control something, and it was out of control. They created a God to worship so they would feel like they have more control over things than they do. I wonder if we still do this today. Maybe ours looks more like this thought. When something we cannot control feels out of control, we worship anything that makes us feel like we can regain a bit of control. Over the last two years, listen, Spirit of God, we invite you to speak. Over the last two years, there's been a lot of things that felt out of control. There's been things that we used to think we got some control over that, that over the last two years, they spiral out of control. And maybe there are places where we've created our own little gods and our own idols to worship. And I get it. When I say some of us, we're worshiping idols, we're idolaters. That's such an aggressive word. But here's all I mean. Here's a definition for what I mean. When I say an idol, here's what I mean when I say that. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything you seek to give you what only God can give. I'm going to leave that up there for a second. See, when I say idol... I'm not saying that you sit at your house and carve out an idol and put it up on your windowsill and bow to it. Oh, mighty idol, would you? That's not what we do anymore. We're more sophisticated now. But nonetheless, I believe that when things that we can't control feel out of control, we suddenly start to build our own little gods that we begin to worship at the altar of. But listen, this doesn't happen in a grandiose moment. There's not a moment where you declare, I no longer worship God and now I worship this. It happens subtly over time. I don't believe there's this big, loud moment that you declare it. It just moves. Here's the phrase that, that caps from this week. I believe we go from investing in things in a healthy way to obsessing over things. And when you make the shift from investing to obsessing, you went from something that's good to something that's now your God. And it's a terrifying thought. And you're like, listen, I'm in church. I don't worship other gods. Maybe, but if you're honest, the Spirit of God might check something in us today. See, I wrote out specifically how this plays out. These might be places that you have erected little gods that you are worshiping, and maybe you don't even know it yet. In your finances. Over the past two years, you watch your bank account slip. Now everything costs 10% more than it did two years ago. So you start focusing on it. You check your 401k and it's lost big time. 
So you start getting easy, uneasy about your future. And over time, you begin to focus on how you can, you can control your financial situa situation. And you get smart. You start saving differently. And, and that's a good thing. But you subtly shift from investing to obsessing. And your peace rises and falls on how much you have in the bank or in your 401k. And suddenly you find yourself worshiping at the altar of Wall Street or a bank account. See, you're dating over the past two years, isolation has been difficult. You're in the dating stages of life. The fear of being alone has struck you. You don't want to lose your boyfriend or girlfriend because you'd be alone again. And the isolation was tangible. So you, your focus shifts on doing whatever you have to do to keep them. So you suddenly shift from investing in that relationship to obsessing over that relationship. You spend inordinate amounts of time thinking about how to make sure you control the future of that relationship. You decide to cross lines of God's morality to keep them and to woo them to you. You do whatever it takes to keep them. Suddenly, you are now worshiping at the altar of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a relationship. See, when you hear idols, they're good things sometimes that we take too far and they become what they were never meant to become. Your own kids. You're a parent. You want to raise your kids right. You spend time shaping them and pouring into them, but you will eventually realize that you cannot control the output, only the input. But that realization is unsettling. And so you subtly shift from investing to obsessing. You try and control every part of their present and their future. You'll do anything to make sure you can control how your kids turn out, travel ball, honor society, anything you can control. Suddenly you find yourself, your whole world revolves around your kids. And if you're not careful, your kids become your God. Your fitness, you want to be a healthy person, you eat right, you work out. But that starts to shift. You start to find your identity and how you look and what was once investing in being healthy becomes obsessing. You think about how your body looks all the time. Every meal you eat, run through this filter of how it makes your body look and you find yourself worshiping at the altar of vanity or fitness. Politics. We all have opinions about what policies and people would be good for our country, our county, and our cities. Two years ago, you were interested in politics, but now you're deeply invested you watch the news and think if we had the right person or the right policy, everything would be fixed. And you subtly shift from being invested to obsessing. You see everything in life through a political lens. Your mind is focused on politics. For some of you, finally, my guy's in office. My world's at peace. For some of you, my guy's not in office. The world's over. No peace for three more years. Don't pretend this isn't happening. And you find yourself worshiping at the altar of politics. Listen to me. Don't pretend this is an ancient Egypt problem. This is a here and now problem. And what you end up doing is worshiping at the altar of the things you can't control. And the problem with idols is they can never live up to the worship you give them. Never. There is no person you can date that can live up to the worship you give them. There's no politician that can live up to the worship you give them. There's no bank account that can live up to the worship you give them. And just like Egypt experienced, 
all their gods were dethroned, your gods will eventually fall and fail you. See, Egypt couldn't control the rain for the crops, so they made a god and worshipped it. Today, we can't control things, money, relationship, politics. So we build these gods. Students, you build gods and you worship at the altar of sports and grades and popularity. And those gods will fail you. And over the past two years, maybe you've experienced loss and you attribute it to God. When in fact, maybe one of your little G gods was just dethroned and it hurt. See, I don't think God's going to come down like he did in Egypt and start to just tear down the gods that you're worshiping, anything that's not him, and tear it down. But don't expect him to hold them up. See, for me personally, if you were here last weekend, you remember the story of the duplex. <laughs> My brother and I bought a duplex together because I was poor. He was a student. I was making nothing. We had someone live next door to pay our rent. I was a couple years into marriage, and I just quietly in my head said, I'm never going to be in that position again. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let a microwave breaking break me again. And so I quietly made the shift and said, I'm going to get, there was a number I had in my head. If I could get this much money in my bank account, I'll be safe. I'll be secure. And I worked my tail off for years. I said no to a bunch of things that I used to say yes to. No, I don't go out to eat. I, I make bologna and cheese sandwiches at home. And I saved and I saved and I saved. And I finally, I remember the day I hit the number and I went, finally, I'm embarrassed to tell you I slept better that night. I felt secure. I felt like finally, okay, cool. My transmission goes out. Great. I got the emergency fund. I got the backup here. It hurts, but it's not going to crash my world. I finally felt good. And if you were looking at me from the outside, you would say, what a wise young man. Oh, you're being disciplined financially. But what I didn't realize is I shifted from investing to obsessing. I ran everything in my life through the filter of getting to that number in my bank account. And when I finally did, I worshipped. I did it. And I discovered that the descriptors that I was using in my mind about my bank account could have been used and should have been used for God. If I can say things like my savings account is my protection, it's my rescuer. My savings account is my deliverer, my shield from whatever problems the world throws at me. My savings account is my peace and my hope. My savings account is why I can sleep at night. And wouldn't you know it, I finally hit that number. And then my life went on a tear for about three months. And if it could break, it broke. I replaced a refrigerator. I had to replace a car. Appliances broke. The kids' medicine changed and our insurance didn't cover it anymore. And suddenly I woke up and that bank account that I had worked so hard to gather to be my protector and my shield and my, my peace at night to sleep, I looked at it and it was all gone like that. And I was undone at a core level. And it was like God whispered to my soul, how'd your savings account work out as your God? Whew. See, unfortunately, most of the time you don't realize you had an idol until it fails you. My prayer all week 
was that in the kindness of God, he might, Holy Spirit, we give you freedom. He might whisper to you before your little God, your idol fails you. He might show you an altar that you're worshiping at that's not him. And he might give you a chance to lay it down before it fails you. See, maybe the last two years, your faith, your hope, your security was in things that were not God. And when you grieved for a week after the last election, maybe you realized you were worshiping at an idol of politics. Or when you celebrated and thought, our world is finally good now. The last election, thank you, God. Maybe you realize you are worshiping at an altar of politics, not Yahweh. See, the beauty of how God works, listen, the very night where the angel of death came and exacted punishment, destruction for their idol worship, and the firstborn in every family was killed, God gave his people a way out because God always gives his people a way out. And here's what he told them to do. Go kill a spotless lamb and paint the blood from the lamb over the doorpost. Here's how it's accounted for in Exodus 12. On the same night, here's God talking. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It's called the Passover. When the Spirit of God came down to bring punishment for idolatry and wickedness and evil and to bring punishment to a culture that had glorified everything but God. God said, all I need to do is see the blood on your doorpost. And God didn't take a census of who was in the house. He just looked for the blood. And the same thing is true today for us in the New Testament. First Peter 1.18 tells us this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, the Passover was a foreshadowing, the final once and done moment where Jesus would lay his life down to free us. You see, what you'll discover is that in your conquest for control, in your desire to build a life where you can feel control. Like, I can't be touched. If that happens, I got it. In order to get there, here's what you'll discover. The only way to find freedom is to surrender control. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are counterintuitive to the ways of the world. The world says obsess and get enough money in your bank account and get your politician in office and get your relationship locked up and make your kids perfect and then you're good. In the kingdom of God, the, the answer to find freedom is to surrender control. To admit, God, I am not God. And for some of you, it feels like Pharaoh these last two years. Where you finally had to admit, I am not God of my own life. And you would have never said it this way. But if you're honest... Worshipped at the altar of things that were not God. 
And when they fall, it brings destruction always. But God gives us a way out through the person of Jesus. See, we always do like a question every week. And I saved it for now because it wouldn't have made sense at the top. Here's the question we have to answer. What do you really worship? What do you really worship? And I get it. We're in a church, so we know the answer is Jesus, right? Jesus, say the Sunday school answer. Everyone wonder they're Jesus. Like, I get it. If I had three hours, I could go through every list of everything I could think of that could become an idol in your life. I don't have time. My prayer all week is that the Spirit of God in this moment would help you identify places and give you clarity on what you're really worshiping. Whether it be bank accounts, retirement accounts, a relationship, your marriage, your kids, good things can become bad gods. Your politics, popularity, your skills, your abilities, your career path. So we're going to give you space. And I asked Cameron to just lead us and sing a song over us. And I want to give you space to interact with God. There are a couple questions that might be guiding questions for you. Like, how do I discover what I really worship? Here's the question. Where do I spend my time and my money? Where does your best time and best money go? Where do I get my joy? What are the places that really bring you joy? Where do I find my security and my hope? This is a big one. What's always on my mind? What are the things that you obsess over when you have space? See, if you'd be honest before God today, I believe he would show you what you're really worshiping. And like he did for his people at Passover, he would offer you a way out, a way to freedom. Good things can make bad gods, but we serve a good God. And if we would bow, proclaim Jesus only, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's the only name that's worth our worship. So Cameron, as you lead this, you have space between you and God. And our pastors are going to step up and lead you in a moment of surrender and prayer. And so Spirit of God, we invite you to speak, convict, open our eyes. Would you give us an honest moment before you? Would you show us the places where we're worshiping anything that's not you? Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 Stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 Stone Church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories. And make sure to tag 12 Stone Church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.